Yeah, I think that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll paraphrase them and just say it really briefly. And then if you want to respond, and then in your response, you refer to the details. No, of what Alex. What? Okay, look, I don't know. Maybe nobody's fucking listening to me tonight, as usual. I'm saying we use George's paraphrase. We don't paraphrase ourselves. I understand. That's what so I said. And then in, and then in the, then in the, I, in, in our just answers. read out what Alex says. And we then can, in our answers, we refer to the content of the comment. That's exactly can, what I just said, mate. That is exactly what I just said. <laughs> fucking hell, you're asking to me. That is what no. I said before, and now you guys <laughs> are fucking repeating. Anyway, okay, good. Well, look, we're all on the same page. This is, this is fine. <laughs> let's, let's just... <laughs> it was, it was, I, I, I have to confess, I wasn't listening to what Phil said, but Alex, you said exactly the same thing that I said. That's why. We all repeated each other. This is great listening skills. This is like fucking <laughs> every, every feminist who wants to say that men are just... <laughs> artistic like that this is it hello dearest patrons welcome back to alpha bunga bunga it's wednesday the 10th of february I'm still Alex Hochuli and Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare are still very much who I think they are. Are you guys? Are we? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Know, know thyself. The first precept of Socratic philosophy. Sorry, I'm not, Do, no, I'm not, I'm not listening are. to anyone else. I'm just. Uh, I'm just going to keep talking. And uh, <laughs> this is just. Good, on this on is going to be. <laughs> it's going to be three monologues, not a, not a conversation, not a discussion. Three monologues. Exactly. This is the future of podcasting. Just uh, mono blaring. I think we should call it. Um, Trialogue. So, yeah. Monologue. Uh, this is the alpha bonus bonus in which we respond to your questions, criticisms, comments as well as feature some bonus content that we've recorded with the guest, which uh, you will most likely hear at the very end of this after we've gone through the questions. Uh, so let's get cracking uh, with that. Um, so we're going to take some general points that have been put to us uh, over the past month and a half, I think, since we last did one of these, actually maybe two months, two full months. Um, and then we'll go episode by episode discussing some of the issues that have been uh, brought up in, in relation to what the guest said, in relation to stuff that we said that you think is stupid and we should shut the fuck up or, you know, congratulating us on, on our brilliance, whatever, one or the, one or the other. Um, so the first one is from a, a person who shall remain nameless uh, by their request, um, asking about the pandemic and neoliberalism, specifically how neoliberal politics is benefiting from the pandemic. Um, they cite the example that John Kerry said that it's basically helping to stem the tide of right-wing populism. So guys, what what is the effect of pandemic on neoliberalism? I think it's a it's a, we've made this point or I've made this point a number of times it it's just a it's so demobilizing. It's it's against it's stemming the tide of right-wing populism, it's stemming the tide of all kind of participatory politics and it's a it's a class war that's shifting wealth upwards. I mean it's it's if that's your definition of neoliberalism then it's 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 pretty good for neoliberalism. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with what George said. Um, the idea that it's the only thing between, I mean, you know, not wishing to put too fine a point on it, but um, you know, the idea that the that the lockdown and the pandemic is the only thing that's stopping us from the wave of um, fascism and hard right populism and all these kind of all of this authoritarian pol politics washing over us. I mean, we're living under authoritarianism right now. I mean. Um, whether you know whether you think the lockdown is justified or not, it would be um, 
a grave error to um, be deluded about its um, its uh, draconian characteristics, particularly um, particularly in countries in Europe. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say two things. One, I mean, as I've argued before, that the attenuation, I guess, of right wing populism for a bit for me is not the end of the story of, of of populist upsurges and challenges to the existing order. It's a maybe end of life rally, as I called it, that, you know, technocracy, centrism, et cetera, um, will have its little moment still during the pandemic because it puts in power people like chief medical officers, but that won't last. Uh, but also secondly, I mean, you, George said, you know, it's funneling wealth upwards if that's your definition of neoliberalism. I mean, I'm not sure that it is. I wonder Obviously, in some ways, you've seen the, the graphs about like all yeah, the people whose wealth is enormously yeah. magnified. But I guess my my contention, I guess, is whether we should speak about that as neoliberalism specifically. Um, and I'm I'm in favor of a slightly more restricted definition of neoliberalism these days. But, sure, but I mean, so but George said, you know, if that, you know, so I mean, I think it was Adolf Reed Jr.'s definition of neoliberalism as a system of um, redistributing wealth upwards. And that's, you know, the definition George just used. And I mean, by that definition, at least, um, it's clearly yeah. neoliberalism. I think there's another aspect as well, which people often talk about in terms of um, neoliberal subjectivity or whatever, which is basically responsabilization, that the individual is made responsible for social outcomes. And you can kind of see that with the lockdowns, with the idea of we need to sacrifice ourselves to save the NHS, you know, if you're in Britain or save the health service. Um, and as uh, Elena Lange, a future guest of ours, um, put it kind of, or at least I'm paraphrasing um, something that she said in a, in a recent article or kind of blog post of hers, which is that, you know, when the banks fuck up, they get bailed out. There's a supply side solution to that. They get injected with liquidity. When it's the pandemic and there's a public health crisis, only demand side solutions are found, which is to say, stop putting excess demand on the health service, you, the people are wrong, um, rather than the health service being inadequate because it's been underfunded and so on. So in that regard, yeah, very neoliberal. Yeah, just, just I guess one final point on this. Certainly it has felt very neoliberal in the sense at least of this um, Charles Taylor essay, Atomism, which I was reminded of uh, recently, this idea that the, the liberal... Um, subject is is essentially self-sufficient and isolated i think there's a fire alarm going off uh-oh oh, there the you man go. is stopping me from podcasting <laughs> just we're just gonna take just a give me a sec there. um no no it's fine crisis averted um yeah that the basically you know society's been cancelled or is in the process of being so we're all atomized more than we used to be i mean this is a, a liberal idea maybe a neoliberal idea of, of the the subject being pretty you know pretty individualized and um detached from the rest of society so that's definitely how it feels we should maybe re-record all this bit not because of the alarm but just so we can all say like neoliberal with a with a bit of vocal fry um just to just to stay with the temper of the times um, or to make reference to a, to a fellow podcast. Okay, so moving on, uh, another sort of general question from Jack, uh, which is basically addressed to, I guess, Phil more, more than anyone about Corbyn and Brexit, that basically Phil should have supported Corbyn in 2017. Um, that he that he, he comments that he totally understands the point about sovereignty uh, and that, that Remainers haven't grasped properly, um, but that Brexit shouldn't just be argued for on its own merit, but that it should be focused on kind of the outcomes of, of, of Brexit, which might be more left-wing solutions and so on. Phil. 
Yeah, I mean, I I have to disagree um, with the listener in this case. I um, I didn't support Corbyn in 2017 because I didn't trust the Labour Party's commitment to delivering the vote, and I think that the that mistrust was vindicated given the fact that um, eventually Labour Party collapsed into a second referendum. Um, expecting a minority government and essentially seeking to reverse Brexit. And this was indicated by certain of their way in which they maintain certain issues, such as say they said, you know, they would um, um, promote a customs union with the European Union rather than remain part of the customs union. And this kind of um, semantic juggle, jugglery and um, it was just so such so clearly kind of um, chicanery that it was, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't see there was any um, reason to extend my support to the Labour Party. Um, the listener also accuses me kind of of sticking with the culture wars, for which, I mean, it's possible, I suppose. I've always sought to avoid them over Brexit and to keep as focused as possible on questions of institutions, representation, sovereignty, democracy, and avoid the culture wars as much as possible. Perhaps occasionally I've um, slid into that slippery mud pit. You've never, um, you've never tweeted something... Uh, derogatory towards remainers for example oh no i always i've always i always do that <laughs> but um i'm not sure it's um i'm not sure that counts as culture was exactly i mean to, to know, a certain extent the... because it because the brexit debate polarized along the lines of these identities of remainer or lever um rather than on the political objectives well but those are political identities you know so i mean i don't you know i mean i guess i'd have to know what this listener meant by culture was but i don't um I've done my best to avoid them. I can't say perhaps that I always have. Um, yeah. And I still maintain that Brexit has to be judged, but it's about reestablishing the process of politics, um, of democratic politics and um, identifying the kind of clearly established political authority in our representative institutions rather than in the technocratic institutions of the EU. So it is about process. Um, and I never want, I always made clear that it was the process that we were aiming to recover through Brexit, not that it wasn't fixed on any particular left wing outcome by which it would be made legitimate. Yeah, I think it's it's worth saying that I, I took a, a bit of a different approach, um, not being too interested in the, in the semantic jugglery around some of these culture wars things. And in fact, uh, taking a much more, <laughs> a much worse in some ways approach of thinking that uh, some of these arguments could be had within the Labour Party um, and was very uh, unsuccessful in trying to convince, um, I guess, people around in, in <clears throat> Labour and, and Momentum, at least in the local level, that there was um, no good reason to support a second referendum and that there was, in fact, quite a lot of political potential in, in Brexit. So, I mean, hate to say it, but I think Phil, in some ways, was 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 proved right. <laughs> you no, have I've to give, a, give devil his due. I've got to disagree. Yeah. I think George was completely right because I think given the situation in 2016, 2017, the Labour Party presented at least theoretically a more, yeah, more possible avenue for a genuine democratization than the Tories no, did. Didn't. Even if even if even if the Tories were more serious on Brexit. Well, maybe um, from as, the as vantage group, point, maybe from the vantage point of Sao no, Paulo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, not but listen, from but, the vantage but, point but, of actually was, living in the UK. It was fundamentally an argument that had to be won on the left. It was not an argument about left versus right or about lever versus Indeed. remainder. It was an argument that had to be won. But that didn't have to be a Labour Party. That didn't have to be in the Labour Party. A debate in the Labour Party. There is no other left. There is no left. It is the Labour Party right then and there was the site of the battle, like it or not. And you can say this is stupid and it's going to end up all wrong, but that's where 
the fight well, was George, at that time. And George with a massive influence. He was actually in well. the Labour Party and he says, he just said that I was right. So you no, can he, suck no, it. Because you lost, because you lost. So he said, I shouldn't have done it. But it doesn't mean that that was the wrong thing to try at that time. No, I think the Labour Party, you would have to be deeply naive to imagine it would have gone any other way with the Labour Party. That's yeah, in position. retrospect, but, you know, I don't know if that was... Well, next time I'll be, we'll be very sure to um, liaise with you about your insights about British politics <laughs> from Brazil. Yeah. You're going to save Thank me you. quite a lot of time, <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite a few <laughs> evenings in meetings. So, yeah. All right. Um, let, yeah. Let's, let's move on to uh, some of the specific... Uh, responses to specific episodes. So the most recent one, uh, well, the, the most recent but one, the social and gluing with Ben Fong, which is the first one, which is a, a free episode. Um, Paul Brewer says, you know, basically is Alfred Bunga Bunga Anglo-centric, um, which is to say that our commentary on the US is too often framed through British lens. I was surprised by that. We try to avoid that um, in general. Um, so, guys, it's too Brazilian, to... Paul. It's a Brazilian lens. This is the problem <laughs> we have. You know, like it's not a like too Anglo-centric. The Latino influence in Banga is very strong and should never be underestimated. You know, like the global, the position of the global South and the Campesinos Revolt and all of this. So, I guess that'd be my response. So I think it's um, worth clarifying that this is meant as a as a criticism, which Anglocentrism is 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 rarely a problem. No, uh, seriously. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a point about the um, that, that Paul makes about Britons being more cynical about the political class, which he attributes to the expenses scandal. But I don't I don't know if this is actually true. If we think about the last even this year, like in uh, beginning of January, there was a, a display of of mass cynicism. Um, in fact, m- maybe the whole of the uh, presidential campaign was was two different kind of anti-political class uh, movements, or Trump, you, you, you might say, definitely was. So, I mean, I'm 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 willing to willing to recognise my own my own biases and my own uh, positionality, as it were. But I think the um, the point that Americans like transactional politics on the on the quiet, but publicly voice their belief in the moral dimension, which is the way that Paul frames it. I think there's something in, interesting there about the um, that you could probably trace back to the to the structure of to political structures and the and the way that the parties work. So maybe there is there is something for us to reflect on and try and improve hmm. with this criticism. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that I think there might be a point about in the US, as you say, George, um, of <clears throat> public, of a public ideology of believing in the kind of moral, you know, of not questioning the moral integrity of elected officials, and that in Britain it's slightly more, um, and but Britain is still much less than you might find in like Southern Europe, for example. So um, I guess these things that exist on a spectrum. But yeah, I I, I kind of I'm I'm not convinced. So, you know, I'm, I'm not American, so it, I don't I wouldn't know either. But that there's such you're a, not American. There's not that I'm not North American, that there's. Not, yeah, uh, yeah, there you go. You just said you're not American. Yeah, when I'm speaking English, <laughs> you're not you Asian, you what you call it, you Asian, you just US American, US American. Anyway, that I, I think there's a lot of cynicism about the political class that, you know, half the country until recently didn't vote of other, you know, except for this most recent election. So I think I'm not sure exactly how in what esteem actually uh, American representatives are held, Congress re- regularly polls amongst the least trusted institutions. So mm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's also worth saying that de- declining trust in 
politicians has tracked quite uh, closely to declining participation in, in political parties, trade unions, associational bases of politics. So there is a material um, reason for this. The detachment is reflected in feelings of distrust and um, aloofness amongst political elites. Yes, this is the void. Um, speaking of a void, but maybe more of a void uh, inside oneself. Um, this question is about psychoanalysis, I suppose, by, by Filke, um, which is they're skeptical about um, therapists and they, want, they, they, they wonder whether a critique of therapists isn't needed because uh, therapy is seen only as amounting to telling people to seek help, um, which empowers mental health professionals as the good ones. And maybe they aren't the good ones. George. Well, there's yeah, there's a lot of a lot of discussion about how I think particularly um, mental health professionals in in the UK are the ones who reproduce a lot of the uh, biomedical model of mental health and are quite discriminatory against people with um, lived experience of mental health problems. So there's I think the the comment saying that this is part of the critique of the PMC is an, is an interesting one because obviously therapists just like doctors um, in general are part of the PMC so to what extent are their class interests um, against their professional or caring interests yeah yeah that's right or at least their professional interests are aligned with their class interests insofar as it's to promote a discourse around well I guess a therapy culture which uh, which we were precisely critical of in that episode um, so let's move on to the next two, because there's two questions, which uh, from one from Eli and one from Thomas Hackett, which both take on a similar point, which is uh, in relation to a point made in, in the episode with Ben Fong about uh, attempts by conservatives to appeal more to the working class. Um, we held that, you know, and Ben certainly has made that point that the working class in the United States is more is more socially liberal. It might not be culturally liberal, but it is socially liberal. And these two points from Eli and Thomas Hackett push back on that, and they say that the so, the working class isn't so socially liberal as we think. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to this, um, and specifically, I think that there. I mean, it depends what you're talking about. So, I mean, I think if you talk about say women's rights and, um, say, uh, tolerance of sexual minorities. I think, um, you know, the data would say, in particular in the UK, which I'm most familiar with, but I think it's broadly similar in the US, um, that people are much more open and welcoming of uh, different kinds of lifestyles, essentially. But these two people put that into question. They argue that the American working class is not so socially liberal on, for the example that we're given, where, where gay marriage... Um, and uh, well, I didn't say gay marriage. I mean, I think sexual. One of them, one of the, Thomas Hackett's point pointed directly to to support support for gay marriage, which is at best fifty fifty. So I know. So well, I mean, I didn't say gay marriage, but I mean, you know, rights of sexual minorities. I still think there is kind of still kind of um, I don't know, queasiness and um, restraint and suspicion of gay marriage. I think that's true. Um, but immigration, definitely, you know, definitely not. Um, that uh, I think generally. Uh, the data would show that they are um, they are illiberal on the question of um, immigration. Um, but again, I mean, you know, I think we have to be careful about not taking it also too much for granted. Um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of it is also bound up with the question of illegality as well. Um, and if you ask people about support for kind of legal migration, that tends to be higher than 
um, than say, you know, people get tremendously um, irate about illegal migration, but not necessarily about legal routes to migration. So, I, I mean, I would take the point made by the listeners, but I think there is kind of greater complexity if you dig beneath the data um, and that it's an uneven picture on certain questions, as I say, kind of um, sexual minorities, um, women's rights, access to the workplace, abortion. Yes. On other questions, gay marriage, perhaps, um, but definitely immigration, less so. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think we I, we just have to be careful about what we're talking about when we say socially liberal, and maybe it's better to speak about specific issues. But I guess the argument that should be made is that, and I think that Ben tried to make in that uh, article that he wrote for the Bellows, and it's one that I agree with, which is the picture presented by kind of radical liberals that the working class is all reactionary is wrong, and you know they're not all gay bashers and and whatever and 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 raging xenophobes um but they just it's just that they might not be entirely aligned with whatever the the new liberal orthodoxy might be so i think that's maybe more um a point that we could at least agree on yeah and i, I would just just second that which i think is the the key thing that comes out of it that there is a political motivation in post in painting working class people as socially illiberal to the point of fascism because it 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 undermines morally the value and the power of majoritarian decisions um and that as i've i've argued elsewhere is what i think we're going to see from a certain section of the left um so i think these you know sadly or otherwise i think these arguments are going to run and run Yes, indeed. And we will take them up. Um, so let's move on. Um, actually, similar terrain, because it refers to the three articles episode from January number 172. Um, all three questions in some way refer to the article that George introduced, which is the radical left is now extinct. Uh, so that must mean it's a good article that I suggested it. It got people You didn't even write the talking. article, you just suggested it. Well, I mean, if you want brownie points for that, that's... Uh... Yeah, it's better to have good taste <laughs> than to, to work hard and write things. So yeah, I chose a good one. Um, right, so the first one was um, a per, a, someone who was critical of uh, Malcolm Keyuni and, uh, and Bateman's art argument um, about the radical left being extinct. Um, they thought that my own... Um, that me calling them smug was correct and that I should have said more about them being smug. <laughs> um, and I think that. So, that, yeah. So it, should it's, I do it now? Yeah. Um, it's, I, thought uh, yeah. You were, I thought the point was that you were smug, Alex. No, no it's not. It's no, not no, no. It's, it's, that, it's that I was, it's I critiqued them for the, the writers of the article for a certain smugness. Um, or so, you know, are you a little the, smug? You are a little smug, right? It's but the, it, no, but it's the first time that somebody said that they were missing even more of Alex's smugness. That's so, true. That's not yeah. what they said. That's, they said they that's, were missing of, of Alex's smugness take, my take on smugness. Anyway, the point is, is which that is itself these, people, quite smug. these people who are referred to as post-left or whatever, um, I argue that that article has a certain smugness in feeling like well, we're correct. The left is obviously all doomed and stupid, and we're the smart ones in the room, um, which I didn't, which I don't like, because I, because well, what's your solution? You know, we're all fucked here, and um, insofar as we align with the left, however, whether you describe yourself as post-left or not, you still, um, you know, hold to ideas of equality, liberty, and fraternity, or whatever, however else you might want to defend, de describe the left, and so we still need to find some solutions to a world that's going downhill quickly. So I, I find it um, a, a smug in that regard. Um, the, two other questions. One, one which is just a comment that uh, they liked Phil 
um, saying that it really probably takes a little ideological adjustment for parts of the PMC to go full fascist. Uh, that was Bernhard. Um, yeah, thanks, Bernhard. He said that he was he hasn't been with me free often recently, but that he's with me on that. Welcome back, Bernhard. Welcome back to the Phil tent. It's the best tent to be in. So it's good to be here. Welcome back, Bernie. Even a stopped Phil can be right uh, twice a day. Um, and the other the other point was um, also, I guess, directed by to Phil. Um, Ashwin commented that they were confused by Phil's use of the term woke radical left. Um, for them, they see a difference between woke PMC, identity politics, and on the other side, the radical left. Yeah, I'm not sure about this because, I mean, I don't see that much difference. Um, I think, you know, there. I mean, I know that there are people out there who claim to be not woke and kind of, you know, socialists, left comms. Um, whatever, you know, however, Marxists, communists, Marxist, Leninists, whatever, um, and that they would kind of cast themselves against PMC identity politics, and yet they end up um, reproducing it, I think. Um, even, you know, even if they kind of think of themselves as distinct, I think the they're very much two overlapping spheres, irrespective of their intentions. And I think this is evident in the kind of political positions they might take, say, with respect to Black Lives Matters, defund or abolish the police, endless kind of um, discussion about kind of, you know, I don't know, slay, the legacy of slavery in the US at the expense and talking in terms of racial capitalism, for instance, rather than in terms of um, neoliberalism, always casting things in terms of race and identity. Um, and I think it's a way to, you know, it's essentially an, an attempt to kind of claim legitimacy separate from that of the PMC. And in fact, it's on very similar terrain. So I don't, I mean, I don't feel the need, depending obviously on what we're talking about, but generally I see wokeness as a, as a malaise that is spread across the left. I don't see it as confined to a few college campuses and a few kind of uh, social media accounts. I see it as a phenomenon that's much more wide ranging. Yeah, I mean, well, if you if you want to come back to us on that and tell us what you think, please do. Um, I, I I tend to think I agree with Phil that it's widespread, but I think it probably excludes um, sections of the of the radical left or even maybe not so radical left. Um, I mean, even around Jacobin magazine, I don't think they would be described as woke or would advance ideas around racial capitalism or something. They're critical of it, probably not critical enough of it, but uh, but I, I don't think you could put them in the same bucket. But again, I'm not in the US. If you do know, uh, let us know. Um, so next one, um, we have the episode 169, Authoritarian Liberalism, which was with Amber and Danny Vessner. Um, just one uh, positive comment, just to pat ourselves on the back. Uh, Joel, thank you for, for being nice. Uh, he says, after the UK election, you guys had a good bit about how the anti-austerity left was at a loss to respond to the Johnson government's abandonment of austerity. A similar critique should apply at least as much to the US left, who, after spending months convincing themselves that the Biden administration would be pro-austerity or not do any significant domestic policy, will now have to make sense of Biden's willingness to dole out trillions in welfare to economic relief. Thoughts on that? We were, we were yes. right. No, I think we were yeah. right, yeah. There's a, there's a, you know, there's an idea that that's the, the left will find it more difficult to move away from an austerity frame because they the, the right has junked it like the you know uh, state capitalism is is much more widespread because everyone's had to spend shit tons of money around coronavirus and you know mm. austerity's in the bin 
Yeah, no, uh, NTL study was important, but always a limited position and it's uh, exposing itself as to how limited it was right now. Uh, there's another point on the same episode. Um, JP argues that we underestimate the seriousness of the Capitol Hill riots. Um, did we underestimate the seriousness of the Capitol Hill riots? Um, well, JP's argument is that there's um, <clears throat> the carnivalesque aspects of the day, the kind of symbolic, um, spectacular ones obscure the fact that there was... on shaman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that dude. Um, obscure the fact that there was clearly weeks of planning and coordination that went in to an effort to effectively reverse the 2020 election result. Um, I'm not sure I buy that. I don't think this is, was a particularly... We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, not very satisfying response, but we'll see. But I don't, I, I, I don't read that as a campaign of violent intimidation or a, or a proto crypto pseudo or any uh, modifier fascist kind of um, political movement in any way. I think, I mean, we don't have to wait to see. We can compare it with what's happening in Myanmar, right? If you want to see what a coup looks like, it's when there is a, a guy in a uniform on TV announcing that a group of military officers have taken power when it has um, the you know support of sufficient sections of the military that they are able to oust the um, representative institutions of government. Um, so and that's simply that's simply not the case. So, I mean, you know, while I take the point that it wasn't just all carnival and that there were no doubt kind of people in the crowd who'd been um, plotting all sorts of stuff for weeks, perhaps that's not the same thing as a coup. That's not the same thing as. Um, an organized hierarchy and uniform that is actually part of the state apparatus um, seizing power from another part of the state. Um, so, and I think um, the, you know, insofar as the, you know, the listener in their full comment, they mentioned the fact that the American business elite has never fully had its um, interests expressed through Trump. Um, and that's true. And I mean, and that is precisely why, you know, it's, um, it's far from fascism and precisely for that reason. So I don't, um, I think, I mean, yeah. you know, there is more to be shaken out with respect to what's going to happen with the, the GOP and um, Trump and the rest of it and what the impeachment goes and the fact that the Republicans are, as the listener says, kind of um, the only terrain they hold in the American state now is the minority, the um, unrepresentative aspects of the state, such as not even the Senate anymore, but also the, you know, the Supreme Court and so on. And um, there's going to be much more deadlock and um, tension and much more authoritarianism from the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I, I would actually argue that you could, I'm not even sure if Myanmar is entirely a coup, or at least it's kind of also in, in, in the way that these things are tend to be nowadays in, in contradistinction to the Cold War, that it was constitutionally inscribed that the military was still there to superintend politics. So, you know, even there, it's not a classic coup in the sense that you have a civilian government and the military just rides in on tanks. Um, but to, to go back to the US, I just think the one thing about, about this question about fascism and about coup and about what the intentions and or level of organization was of these Trumpists out there, I think we can concede that some of them may be neo-fascists, and, you know, judging by some of the regalia on show there and Auschwitz t-shirts and whatnot, I'm happy to say that they're fascists. But at the same time, I don't think that the movement as a whole has coalesced into something that should be called fascist. I think it's something else. And I think that's a, an important distinction to, to draw. Right. So to a um, controversial episode, our interview with Andreas Malm on uh, war communism, Corona and COVID, um, this obviously split opinion. Um 
and, and I mean, actually, one of the comments was supportive of Malm and uh, three of them critical. Um, so uh, Sploof says that uh, basically war communism is coming, whether we like it or not. Um, I don't know if, if Phil wants to comment on that, uh, given it was the episode that he pulled together. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. There seems to be on in certain sections of the left a certain kind of grim satisfaction in fatalistically imagining that um, that we're going to see um, this um, authoritarian reorganization around the imperatives of the climate emergency. Um, and the listener goes on to say, you know, it won't be communist, it won't be pretty and nice, it'll be brutal, but it won't. And there's no opportunity, there's no possibility for radical working class politics in what's going to come. And indeed, they also say the COVID crisis, the lockdown is a kind of um, prefiguration of the kinds of authoritarianism that we're going to see with the climate lockdown. Um, and so even though the listener isn't optimistic in any sense, um, they don't kind of look forward to this. There is still seems to be a kind of, like I say, a kind of a grim fatalism in their response to it. I mean, well, you know, I mean, nobody, I think, could accuse us of being overly optimistic about the possibility for radical democratic and popular politics at the moment. Um, I don't see, I think, this um, underestimating the capacity of the economy, of our economies to adapt, I think, um, without this, um, the kind of uh, the grim, um, highly hyper-organized and centralized war economy style direction that Malm envisages and this listener. I think that's a mistake. And I think the it's to mischaracterize the nature of contemporary authoritarianism um, because it's not based on centralized command style economies of the old sort. It's an authoritarianism that grows out of neoliberalism. So I think we all will see authoritarianism, but I do also think that the just looking at the uh, technology and the capacity, as I say, for adaptation and the fact that all of this technology is in reach, it's mainly a matter of political will. It's not like there has to be much innovation. All of this makes me, um, I don't think our, I don't think what is coming is going to be um, the, you know, the problems of our future are not going to be that of um, kind of uh, eco-fascist or, eco-communist dictatorship of one sort or another. Speaking of political will and technology, uh, the next question um, from, from Joel points out that capitalism can handle decarbonization and that Malm's politics are uninspiring. And here, I think it, he makes a point, which I think, uh, which our friend Lee Phillips has made recently uh, in a long thread, he, he, which I retweeted, it's worth having a look, um, pointing out that you know, in, in some ways, cap, I mean, that capitalism firstly can handle decarbonization, as, as this as this has said, that it's, again, a question of political will. And that conversely, under socialism, you'd also have, <laughs> you'd also have climate change. Or if we had lived under a, a, a socialist society for the past 30 years or 50 years, uh, we would also have had climate change until um, driven by greenhouse gas emissions until we had realized uh, that we that there weren't. Now, um, or excuse me, until we had realized that 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 that's what had, had ha what was happening, um, and then take measures to respond to it. So I think that's the I think the point about capitalism, I guess, is not that it's would be incapable of decarbonizing. It's just that you maybe don't have the political coordination under capitalism to ever, you know, kind of uh, foment the political will to to resolve these issues. And I think that's 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 the issue. But I'm also skeptical of eco-socialism because I think there's no need to tack on the eco bit to it. I'm not sure what that does other than to sneak in a sort of degrowth or anti-growth prejudice. Um, 
So, you know, uh, perhaps only socialism will be able to deal with climate change, but that's just because of, of political will and coordination and global coordination. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure I agree. I think the, <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen the film Geostorm, which uh, it's like the day after tomorrow, but I actually enjoyed it. It has terrible reviews absolutely everywhere. But the premise is that there's essentially an international set of satellites which control the temperature of the world. And that seems, you know, seems plausible to me um, under under capitalism in in some way or form, shape or form. I think the 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 interesting thing about Joel's comment is this idea that there's a similarity between um, a kind of eco socialist uh, gambit or or starting proposition and the idea of socialism or barbarism, which is is that essentially in both cases it's a sort of there's a kind of moral blackmail or moral like you have to do this or everything is gonna you know everything is gonna go to shit well no i think that's just not right and that's not the situation that we find ourselves in it's an easy answer and the much more difficult question is how you organize people to want to self-govern and then to do it we're still essentially facing the same questions that we've been facing since the 19th century we have all this technology do we have the political will to organize it and to use it so the uh, next two points, one from Sam, one sensible captain, both very critical of Malm. Uh, Sam satirizes it as the, the all new leftism trademark 2021 with the working class now optional. Um, and sensible captain points out that uh, basically she finds Malm hostile to mass democracy, that it ends up resolving to Stalinism, not Leninism as, as Malm claims. Um, I mean, that's something that we tried to draw out in the discussions with Malm, and he, again, was a, was actually a fantastic guest, very willing to debate these issues and, and open to taking on criticisms, um, which is great, um, but I don't think it was a secret to anyone listening to it uh, to learn that we disagreed with him on, well, primarily and principally this issue. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I was... Um... It was, uh, I enjoyed the episode very much because I found Malm an impressive interlocutor, despite our disagreement. And um, so often in discussions with um, green leftists, there's so much moralism. And I think, um, and Malm didn't moralize, so though we disagree, I thought it was a very productive debate. And um, I think, and also, you know, I, uh, I think he also made some, some powerful and important points, which is about the character of emergency politics. Um, and the fact that, um, you know, emergency politics is something which can't be seen as can't be left to the monopoly of the right and how the left deals with emergency politics, I think, is indeed one of the kind of um, one of the central dilemmas of politics itself, I think, since the yeah. early 20th century. And, and we're in no a, getting around that. We're yeah, in indeed, new, we're in it. That's Yeah, we're, we're, but we're in a new emergency um, where we don't know when it's going to finish, or maybe that is the, the defining characteristic of any true emergency. Um, but it's so striking. Yeah. We're like currently, I'm in a flat lock in in a lockdown where I don't know it's when it's going to finish, and that's that is a very um, that is not a political situation which I've been in 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 my life before, and it's very you know very disorientating and and demobilizing, but it's still definitely a political situation well i suppose the way i see it is slightly different in that i think you know the the lockdown does speak it's an artifact of a lack of public capacity 
to so emergency rule as a substitute for public capacity to deal with um, with a health crisis. Um, but then it kind of grows out of the war on terror with these different kind of um, coded coloured alert levels, for instance, um, restrictions on travel. I mean, another kind of um, giveaway. Um, and then the war on terror kind of, you know, um, that grows out of the international war against global war against communism, which also kind of in the Cold War provided for all sorts of emergency provisions um, within constitutions that allowed states to spy on their citizens, to make them disappear, um, to um, make communist parties and left-wing parties illegal, um, develop huge um, deep state bureaucracies and um, war apparatuses. And that goes back to the interwar period, which itself was nothing but crisis. So it seems to me these are kind of rolling waves of um, an emergency politics that stretches back now very far to the First World War. I, I and there's ebbs and flows. And, you know, it, I mean, you know, and there's better periods and worse periods. But it seems to me emergency rule is to some degree embedded in the functioning of liberal democracy itself. And that calls into question um, liberal democracy is a viable, you know, or at least the form that we live under now is a viable form of government. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. And I'm, maybe that kind of contradicts what I was about to say and maybe makes you think about it a little bit more because there's not for nothing that theorists talk about the period, you know, from maybe the 2000s or even the 90s onwards as the era of emergencies. And what it represents is maybe that some of the emergency periods under the Cold War, which were especially applied, you know, to sort of extrajudicial assassinations and, and military maneuvers over there, you know, in, in the third world, um, which are now brought home um, and the kind of flexibilization of laws and, and, and rights at home um, that people had come to expect. But maybe that holds up to holds up the, the sort of post-war period in Europe at, at too, to too high a standard. That also was a period of, well, you had Operation Gladio, for example, right after the Second World War. Oh, but that's so, what I meant. Exactly that. I mean, I, sorry, just I didn't mean kind of um, anti-communism just in the third world. Mm. I mean, also, you know, in Europe itself. Um, West Germany banning the Communist Party, um, say the extent of uh, domestic surveillance in the US with the and FBI. The, the, consp the conspiracies in Italy of like P2 and, and whatever else against uh, between, you know, collusion with the mafia. Yeah, the years of lead in yeah. the 70s, all of that. Yeah. So all I mean, you know, not to mention, I mean, France is, you know, I mean, for, is on the brink of civil war a number of times in the post-war period. Um, so, I mean, you know, all of this is, um, yeah, I mean, it's very much in the West. And I, I meant in the West, in fact, mm. um, even worse in the third world, obviously. Yes, indeed. So let's move on to uh, the penultimate episode about which we have comments. So this was the one that came out at the end of last year. Um, lots of people seem to really like this, which uh, was left me and, and all of us quite happy about because it was a difficult one. It was the one with uh, the kingdom of God is on Main Street, the inter interview with Todd McGowan about Hegel. Um, so in terms of subject matter, probably one of the most difficult ones which we've broached. Um, but people seem to have got it, and that's credit to, to McGowan for, for being able to popularize difficult philosophical questions. Um, but uh, someone called Michael, uh, can I call you Bike, uh, asks basically, does McGowan ignore power? So this question about understanding um, understanding the dialectic is just this sort of mental process. Um, does he ignore real concepts like power and so on? I mean, yeah, it's a good... Phil just question, put his hands up. Yeah, he went, what? But sorry, but George, you were answering. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the one of the things that we, we got into in, this is, sounds like it's just a trailer for the Reading Club episode that we did on this. Um, do you have to 
pay more for but we did get into this more in the in in that episode um i think particularly around what what's the politics um that comes out of this kind of um reconciling yourself to contradiction what is what does this mean for a um i'm kind of almost going into the to the next question here that we that we've got but what what happens if you if you have this kind of um emancipation focus without a recognition that some contradictions are historically specific um it leads you to a, to a kind of maybe free floating um resistance politics rather than <clears throat> one of kind of collective self-government maybe one way of also of addressing that first question is by looking at the second one which is from dan o'hara which asks something that we dealt on in the episode and in the reading club um and i'm still not entirely sure on it. I think we've all been kind of a bit flummoxed about how to exactly deal with this issue, which is to say, yeah. uh, isn't communism the overcoming of class contradiction? So, you know, Dan specifically says he's confused as to how a pol positive political project emerges from this idea of reconciling ourselves with infinite contradiction. Um, isn't communism precisely the overcoming of, of contradiction and that you have then a truly free society? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, something we need. I mean, we would like to get um, Todd back on. And I think this is the question we have to kind of put to him next time that we have him on as something which is an overhang from the from the episode, the early episodes we did, and also from our listeners. I mean, I think perhaps the and I'm, a better way to perhaps conceptualize the issue, and this perhaps goes beyond um, uh, Todd McGowan's framing of the question, but it's that I think the issue isn't so much... Um, contradiction exactly as much as the way that capitalism mangles agency um, and so insofar as capitalism mangles agency that it prevents us from um, given that contradiction is the basis of our freedom and the basis of our capacity for agency um, the point about um, liberating ourselves within and through capitalism is to enable us to um, to have greater scope for self-government. Um, and so I think it's more kind of perhaps framing it less in terms of um, um, kind of uh, substituting one contradiction for another or where contradictions go, or it's more to think of it in terms of agency. Yeah, I think there's a number of different understandings of, of communism, but I think the the one benefit of the, the discussion is that it it makes you think less of communism as the a riddle of history solved and that's essentially all the, the problems that humanity has they're done and instead as the end of prehistory of mankind that actually there are there will still obviously be contradictions of various sorts and that's what gives history its forward motion and this is you know my understanding of marx's reading of hegel um but that it's just a specific sort of contradiction um around material um basis for reproducing life which is which is solved which is overcome um it's not the end of everything but it allows a whole new sort of uh, species to to flourish and develop so maybe maybe we're not disagreeing that much here phil and this is um this is agencies at the center of that it's actually unlocking some sort of agency which we which we currently don't have access to i don't i mean i think if you take mcgowan seriously and you know you want to buy into the whole to his whole understanding of hegel uh it is that communism i mean i you know my, my interpretation is that it communism i mean he was anti-communist i mean this was or at yes, least anti-marxist 
Yeah. So this was very explicit think, in the book. No, no. So, so let me. So let me. So I don't think you can be an anti-Marxist Hegelian. I don't. I don't think that's possible. But anyway, well, sorry, Alex. Anyway, well, I, I you think... can because there were. I mean, there are plenty of Hegelians who are not Marxists. But then yeah. they're, maybe they're not Hegelians. Mm, and look, <laughs> I think the point here is that the, the he doesn't have. I guess what you would. People like Badu or Rancière call uh, a metapolitics, right? So that you still remain within politics. You don't have this overcoming. So you might overcome class antagonism, um, but you would still have other forms of contradiction. So you wouldn't have the end of politics in communism. And I think that that's, I guess, how I would understand it. You would have the end of politics in communism. But that's not okay. But who this, the hell would want to be like, you know, when you could be like having group sex on a beach? Who the hell would want to be like handing out flyers on a street corner for well, Christ's sake? Yes, you would have the end of politics. I mean, it might not take a class form, you know, but it, would it won't be politics be... under communism. They just no, won't. It's, it's, look, it's people's is... choice. If, if they want to attend a parish meeting on Zoom under communism, then good, you know, good for them. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, like a, per, you know, like a perversion or idiosyncrasy. It's not something which is necessary to resolve questions of the centralized uh, control over power. Uh, anyway, I mean, we're, we're arguing about things. No, but yeah, I, I think it is. I think it, have much control like, over. all this displays the fact that it, it's not entirely clear. But I, I kind of tend to think that the McGowan's argument is anti-communist in that regard. Then um, that it wouldn't that he still would that you would still have these contradictions in in communist society, um, not class contradictions, uh, just, but other forms of contradictions which would require, I guess, politics to to debate over. Just a quick, just a quick point here. Is that just to return to the the eco-socialism point? It's like you can't. I think you can't say communism solves everything. Um, I think that's too too easy in the way that you can't say climate change destroys everything because then it's just it's kind of metaphysical in a way that's that's not no helpful. communism does resolve everything. No, you would have no, you'd still have ordinary Disagree. unhappiness to, to make a reference to to kind of our, the Freudian discussion we had in our latest episode. Yeah, but it does solve everything. It doesn't make you happy necessarily, but it does solve everything. I think that's a there's a difference there. Okay, we'll have to park that for now. Um, last point on this is uh, from Vol Vulcan, is anti-fascism fascist? Um, so they, they point out that the, the Jew of modern politics is, white, is the white supremacist. Um, what do we think of this? Is it... I'd say overstated. I mean, to my point of view, like um, I don't think um, anti-fascism is fascist. It's certainly authoritarian. And its origin, I mean, you know, that's given by its origins in... Um, in the um, kind of third period popular front anti-Stalinism of the Comintern, the popular front politics of the post-war period, you know, those are the origins of anti-fascism. Um, and it's been appropriated by the left and is it's deeply authoritarian in so many ways and also imperialistic. I mean, if you think about anti-fascism feeding into um, wars against new Hitlers that keep on popping up all the time, you know, that's part of it as well. But I think you know, I think the listener uh, would over overstates the case here um, that the white supremacist kind of occupies a place that's similar to the Jew in the fascist um, imaginary. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of making it too strong. Yeah, or even just a, kind of a structural anti-Semitism. I don't think it's it's quite that far. There's an interesting to 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 kind of um, uh, read out a little bit of the of, of the comment. The the idea that is then that the white supremacist serves as a soon-to-be disposed of redneck deplorable and simultaneously a member of the colonialist masterclass controlling the world through the CIA, deep state, etc. And I think there's a there is a there is an important contradiction um, in 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 contemporary liberal thinking about white supremacy um, that it's at one and the same time the 
the most deplorable morally um, in society. And at the same time, it's those who have who have power. And that is a mix which leads to some um, potentially quite, I was going to say, quite robust political responses. So I think that I think it's a deliberately overstated point, but but quite a kind of a thought provoking one from from uh, Vulcan. Yeah, clever. Vulcan with an O. <laughs> um, so let's move on to the last set of points, uh, which are actually in reference to fiddling and fittingly enough, uh, the last outfit bonus bonus, which was 166, which came out in December, if I'm not mistaken. Um, one point made by Elias uh, pointing out that I was wrong about the view of the revolution in France, um, that uh, there's anti-revolutionary feeling in France symbolized by Furet, Francois Furet, who's a historian. Um, who you know pointed out that the revolution was the French Revolution was a forerunner to totalitarianism and so on. Um, I take the point absolutely, but I don't. Thank think- you, Elias, for agreeing with me. And I Thank pointed you. this out, I think, to Alex at the time. He probably edited it out at the time as well. But yes, this I is- obviously didn't edit it out. Otherwise, they'd be aware of they wouldn't be aware of what I said. Anyway, the, the I think the point is more that in France, so he edited no out one, what I said. There's no there's no monarchist. They'll point out that the revolution was bloody. It went too far. Blah 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 blah. But there's no force in society. You know, since the revolution. I mean, not or at least not since the revolution, but, you know, in, in, in the, in the kind of contemporary period who would seek to go back to a pre-French revolutionary period. Um, there's not kind of any monarchist restorationists in, in any significant sense. Yeah. But there's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you got to go. yeah, there's a lot of anti-revolutionary. No, different. Yeah. There's a lot of anti-revolutionary um, intellectuals who don't, who, who seek to discredit any mass or potentially, um system system changing oh, what a horrible phrase um action and I, you know i think that's a that is a point well made okay and finally um one nice comment from uh, daniel matthews ferrero european civilization is the never-ending quest for a more gentle more relaxed more trustful and less dangerous society that's a quote i'm not sure what from but that's they're obviously satirizing uh that because the experience of lockdown has made them more hostile to this sort of stultifying paternalism seeing france uh, excuse me seeing spain turned into a padded cell overnight without discussion let alone resistance was really something the only resistance possible was isolated and therefore insane, uh, which is probably why at some point I did take the cat for a walk. Uh, presumably they took a cat for a walk so that they'd have a justification for being allowed out. Yeah, um, because you could weirdly under the Spanish lockdown, um, you could take pets out for walks. And so um, this listener, Daniel, took his cat out for a walk, though I should, which is insane. And I should point out, though, Daniel, that we do have one of our hosts indeed regularly takes his cat out for a walk. So you're not you're not alone in your insanity. But he, but this guy also know. does it. He, he, he also needs to learn about the outside world. She's an explorer. But Alex actually takes his cat out <laughs> even without lockdown. He still takes his cat out for walks. <laughs> That's normal. It's a no- He's just a normal guy just doing normal, normal stuff. Can after a walk. Um, all right, let's leave that there. We hope you've enjoyed or taken something from this alpha bonus bonus and continue to do so in the future. Let us know, or you know, if you want us to branch out and uh, give you dating or sex advice or uh, do a you know home baking workshop, ask us why your muffin's not rising. Uh, we can maybe oblige. <laughs> okay, that's it for now. Here's uh, the, the bonus content.
Hello, patrons. We're back. Uh, we are talking with Catherine Liu. This is a continuation of our previous uh, discussion. Consider this the after party. After uh, after the main thing, after the bunga bunga party, this is the after party. And we are going to be talking about the culture industry, Americanization, the children of the PMC, uh, decolonizing the curriculum. But we're going to start talking, uh, we're going to start where we finished, which was about professional managerial class unions and unionization, a recent trend. Um, so before I bring in Phil and George, as well as our guest, Catherine, um, I'm going to speak a little bit about this phenomenon of middle class unionization, uh, especially in the US. So I don't know if you're aware of the news or whether this recent trend, but there's an Alphabet Workers Union, of course, Alphabet being the parent company of Google, um, various others in tech companies, uh, unionization at newspapers and at other media outlets. Uh, and of course, there are also big strikes by teachers in Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and so, so on over the past few years. We did an episode on it um, about a couple of years back. And of course, you know, teachers themselves are, are the PMC as well. Um, but I think a lot of the coverage on this has been quite boosterish, especially in progressive and socialist media. And it disguises maybe something weird going on, some of the pathologies of the PMC that we already discussed in, in the kind of main uh, free episode. Um, and we're going to delve a little bit more deeply into it here. So there's a recent piece in Damage magazine, uh, which the link to it, which is included in the show notes, uh, which has been a bit more critical of, of this phenomenon. It's called The PMC Gets Organized. And the author, Dominic King, shows how these are minority unions, which is to say they're not ones recognized by the National Labor Relations Board. They're often just a few hundred workers in a big company for example, as in the case of the Google union. Um, but the issue isn't so much that. Uh, the problem is that they're kind of minoritarian unions. They're made up of activists often defending pet causes rather than representing members against employers. So uh, that, that article says, you know, tech worker demands don't always challenge and thereby extract concessions from management, but rather often demonstrate a desire to be management, i.e. to have control over hiring and firing practices, to be more just and inclusive than existing managers and so on. Um, so a listener to this podcast who has to remain anonymous for reasons of their own job security reached out to me to tell me a little bit more about what's going on. And so the, the following bit here is going to be um, in some way relaying what they've told me, um, and I'll make a couple of commentaries along the way. Um, they are someone who was involved in militancy in these tech unions, so saw, saw a lot of this stuff firsthand. So the first example uh, is uh, at a panel discussion about PMC unions, you had two professional employees at a tech company uh, who were there talking about ethics and drones and so on. And the person next to them also on the panel was a subcontracted Facebook cafeteria worker who had got cancer and missed some work for chemo. And then her, their employer tried to fire her. Um, so the union stepped in and protected her job and won them better health insurance from the employer. And so the activists, uh, the other guy, the, the 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 two other professional employees on the panel were hearing this and go, yeah, you go, girl, you know, cheering her on. But at the same time, but then went on and to say like, yeah, but anyway, back to what we were talking about, we need more control and ethics and blah 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 blah. Uh, there was another case that uh, the Google Union effort basically reached a tipping point uh, and went public in response to the departure of an elite researcher and manager in the ethical AI group at Google. This researcher kind of fancied themselves a bit of a race leader uh, for the field and for the company. And she was fired, apparently, for trying to protect and lift up Black women at Google. That's the official story, but the truth seems to be that she gave her boss an ultimatum when they pushed back on an external research paper she wanted to submit, and then sent out an email to hundreds of employees about how the company opposes Black women, um, seemingly kind of overblown. 
And then she was then shocked to find that the boss had taken her up on her ultimatum and accepted her resignation. So there's a lot of kind of uh, other political and pet issues mixed up with uh, the basic job of a union of defending workers union. Um, however, and this is something that our, our correspondent notes, that there's a divide between top tier tech companies like Google and smaller ones where they have some union campaigns among programmers. So whereas the former, that is Google, gets elite college grads from all around the world, the latter gets the more proletarianized one. So it's a, it's a mixed picture. So even in the same sector and the same job, you get quite a bit of variation which maybe captures the ambivalence of the PMC as a class, something that we were discussing in the main episode of a division between the upper and the lower PMC. Um, so there's still a case to be made, one assumes, for PMC unions, especially if we're talking about the lower end of the BMC and especially if we're talking about teachers and unions and so on. But even some of these tech and journalism unions still do the basic job of representing and defending members' material interests alongside all the other stuff. So, and they've had some success in doing that in overturning layoffs or guaranteeing back pay for fired workers or fighting unjust dismissals. But the problem seems to be, uh, argues our correspondent, that they often get subsumed by higher end PMC concerns. So for example, uh, this is again, a, an example from our listener, uh, they mimic socialist language about wanting to have democracy in the workplace. But what they mean when they say that is that they want more ethical managers. They want to have a say in the business decision regarding ethics, not any say in the conditions for workers. Uh, as they said, uh, they want to protect the world from Google, not protect each other from the boss, which I thought was a, quite a telling line. So, you know, you can see Google as dangerous um, in, in the world, but it's really striking that many of the issues the PMC unions take up themselves are ideologically aligned with the views of their employer. So, you know, defending diversity or ethics and so on. So, one thing that really struck me as crazy, and this is something, again, that was passed on to me from uh, from our listener, was that critics of PMC unions often do it on woke grounds. So uh, then I, I saw some some screenshots from Twitter. Uh, one Google activist on Twitter, uh, quite a well-known one, uh, argued that control is an illusion. There's no difference between the walls of Google, the walls of the Alphabet Workers Union, and the wall that Trump wanted to build. Uh, and another another former Google worker argued that business unions are problematic because they only involve current employees as stakeholders, while radical unions see current employees only as a source of power, but not necessarily the total set of interests. I.e., these radical unions, which the PM, which these PMC activists want to defend, are interested in pursuing all sorts of other causes rather than uh, just the basic job of defending their members' interests. And so the thing that strikes me with all this, I mean, three points, basically. Um, firstly, is that I would normally be critical of unions for not being political enough for, you know, what is called economism. Um, and that was often the radical critique of corporatist unions throughout the post-war period. But now it seems, especially for these middle-class unions, you could argue that they're too political, that they're basically unattuned to the basic defense of their members' economic interests and are more interested in playing out a role as activists. Um, the second point is that it's, this is the narcissism of the PMC, in my view. So they're so self-conscious about their own privilege that, and they can't see beyond it. So all their activity is entirely oriented around this ambivalence about their own privilege. Um, their activism is rooted in um, basically being a club of like-minded people rather than uniting people who have the same interests, irrespective of whether they're from the same walk of life or the same type of person, have the same interests and so on. Um, and the third thing, and this is an issue which we've discussed a lot in the podcast, which it seems to me to be part of a wider politicization and radicalization of the middle class across the West. 
So you have an increasing self-assertiveness of the PMC, which is manifest in this unionization, um, but was also manifest in the hypocrisy over, you know, at the beginning of 2020 um, of the PMC insisting people stay at home during the pandemic, followed shortly after by the PMC going to the streets in the name of Black Lives Matter. Um, on our word only, it seems to be, uh, or what uh, Elena Lang has called the middle class leviathan. Um, so those are some of right at there at the end, um, some of my thoughts. Um, but I'd like to bring in uh, the rest of you guys to, to discuss some of those points and whether we think middle class unionization pro- is potentially progressive or whether it'll inevitably be bound up with the PMC's own uh, LARPing and uh, dreams of, of being an activist and its own pet projects. One thing that strikes me listening to what you were saying is um, I th- how the um, kind of tech sector unionism is probably something which is very specific to the states because the PMC unions in the UK are overwhelmingly public sector unions, um, academics, civil servants, teachers, um, nurses. So the, there's, um, I think probably the states is um, perhaps the states is the exception where you have the beginning of kind of or encroachment of PMC unionization, I suppose, in in the private sector. Whereas generally, I think the reason there is PMC union unionism is because the unions were beaten back and their last kind of readouts in the economy tend to be professional, um, white collar, white collar professional jobs. Well, I mean, Phil, just quickly, maybe you can talk a little bit of your own experience with uh, higher education unions as well, because it seems to reflect, I mean, certainly what you've told me reflects some of these tendencies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's as much as you'd expect in um, in the academy at the moment in particular. Um, so, for instance, with the British, um, the University College Union, which is the largest higher education union in the world and represents both um, academics, um, which is to say people who teach and research at universities, as well as people who teach in further education colleges in the UK. Um, I think it's taken uh, tremendously um backward stance with respect to the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, they've been kind of, um, rather than they've been encouraging with the, whereas the government has kind of tried to keep some vestigial forms of um, higher education intact with uh, appropriate social distancing and hybrid models of teaching delivery so that um, people can be uh, taught kind of in a more uh, in a safer environment. Um, the union has been consistently pushing to um, to scrap that. Um, and to uh, kind of facilitate the middle class's retreat to Zoom. And that seems to me um, problematic in, I mean, in so many ways, but in two ways specifically. The first is the inability to um, to valorize education. So simply to defend um, the kind of the calling of education and the f- purpose that it serves in, in society. Um, and also it's entirely self-defeating character because um, given the fact um, how protected and um, how protected and uh, comfortable um, academic um, academic work is for so many um, so many members of the union compared to so many other people in the context of the pandemic, the fact that we're unwilling to indicate or unwilling to um, step up to the plate in these extraordinary circumstances and to try and maintain, like I say, some kind of apparatus of um, carrying on with our jobs in an environment that's actually conducive to teaching face-to-face. I think that's going to badly undermine any case that we can make in the future. It'll undermine the potential for winning public support in industrial action. It sets up the precedent for um, uh, expanding teaching online 
delivering uh, more with fewer resources and also the possibility of job cuts. So I think the um, the kind of the way in which the PMC effectively and PMC union in this case allowed for this retreat on mass to the two dimensional world of Zoom and away from face to face teaching is um, a catastrophe for unionism in the country, for the success of the union, for winning support for industrial action and also just for maintaining some minimum kind of um, level of social functioning in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, Catherine, is that uh, um, something that I, I, I think that's really astonishing and um, um, reflects certain things that I've been thinking, Phil, but I haven't really been saying until now. You know, in our zip code, which encompasses university health and the student housing in the university, we have had fewer than five deaths since the beginning of the pandemic. And to shut down a university of over 34,000 students and 18,000 faculty and even more scores more um, um, employee other employees just seems to prevent five deaths seems completely out of proportion, completely insane. Like I would actually rather be a frontline worker and be allowed to go to my office and see students if I wanted to do but um, there is this kind of like self-preservation mode. And this is a very PMC stronghold that I was talking about, our, my neighborhood. So let fewer than five deaths since January 2020 due to COVID. I just saw these numbers yeah. today. And so it's really terrifying. But I, I wanted to go back to what um, Alex was saying, too, about um, PMC union organizing and its it seems like it's just trying to create newer and better protocols of management in general. And one of the things that um, I think as a class you can say that we have solidarity on is that we all believe ourselves to be managing our class and ourselves. And so we've done a really good job at self-protection. We've really protected our interests um, against the interests of actual frontline workers against the interests of the working class yeah. and um we've done we're going to come out of this pandemic you say it's going to be bad for professors in the university in england um in the uk but i think in terms of just life self-preservation like the class itself and at least in my little part of the world has been enormously good at serving its own interests so um, there will be a reconfiguration of the university as such, but there is just no social solidarity. This is a class that has no sense of social solidarity at yeah, all. It actually represents yeah. a very tiny segment of the population, but it takes up an inordinate number of resources and visibility. And so um, um, to talk about like um, the possibilities of unionization, I really have no... Um, illusions about any notion of solidarity within mm. my class for other workers. So I don't. I think the way that it's behaved in this pandemic is all about covering its own ass, and it's yep. done a really good job of that. Yeah. And it will continue to do a really good job of that. And so the whole idea that I'm trying to spark is an idea of antagonism class antagonism well the i think the class antagonism is there a little bit but it's been antagonism towards um working class people who have broken rules and have endangered people um who have have met in social situations beyond just bringing delivery to the to the door 
Um, I think though you're right, Catherine, that the the lack of um, any social solidarity or feeling of society um, from the PMC has been has been really striking. Yeah. The lack of, so I mean, I suppose this is just building on what Catherine said, but I mean, this and what struck home for me in the context of my um, union is the lack of any sense of public mission with respect to education. And I think that exemplifies this simple, um, the simple lack of the most basic solidarity. Um, so, I mean, far from kind of um, genuine or meaningful solidarity with other, with other workers, with other labor organizations, just even a lack of um, a sense of public mission to commit to maintaining education in, in, in extraordinary circumstances. And in his circumstances, which, as Catherine says, you know, were generally far safer than, say, working in hospitals, for instance. Um, so... So now that we're, I mean, as we're talking about higher education, I thought we could segue to talking a little bit about uh, decolonizing the curriculum. Uh, so there was a case recently uh, of, uh, which I think made the, made the news, maybe listeners will have come across this, that Leicester University was canceling all medieval studies, basically anything before, you know, 1600 or something. Um, and under the guise of decolonizing the curriculum, I mean, I tweeted about this and it, and kind of lots of people picked up on this and were, were, were furious about it, but a lot of people also who, you know, ostensibly committed to the decolonized cause, who felt aggrieved that their cause was being used, uh, instrumentalized in order to, you know, cut staff, uh, to, to cut uh, different courses that are being provided by the university and so on. Uh, for me, I see these things go hand in hand. I think the kind of philistinism that ideas like decolonize a curriculum uh, often carry go hand in hand with marketize, marketization. They, they're one of, they're, they're part of the same thing. And it's, I mean, it's something that Phil um, as well as uh, our friend uh, Lee Jones have written about in a, in a report that they put out. Um, we'll link to it actually. It's a good moment to link to it uh, in the uh, in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, pointing out that basically Philistinism and marketization go hand in hand. And this PMC, uh, to refer to the discussion that we had in the in the main ep- in the main episode, um, the the PMC are not intellectuals and don't really have any sense of defense of uh, of the classics or of intellectual tradition or of learning um, at all, really. Um, and in fact, are much more wedded to a certain notion of activism of uh, deconstructing or taking down some structures uh, that they believe are oppressing us. And and that seems to be dr- more. Dr- driving their uh yeah their actions than uh any kind of uh defense of learning in the way that phil talked about so i have this theory and it's totally unsubstantiated and i'm just going to um um put it out here that i think this kind of institutionalized philistinism is a function of um the meritocracy and its corruption of academic life for ends driven as a as a as an ends driven process and that ends driven process can be to become is about social mobility and i've written about this before where um um education is not a social elevator it only moves up very small pe- small pieces of the population um good social welfare free child care, free health care, like universal social programs like we like they have in Norway and the Scandinavian countries create much better conditions for social mobility than meritocratically means tested um, distribution of education, higher education as a luxury good as in the United States. But 
when you are put into this system and it is intimidating to feel that you have to bear like 5,000 years of tradition or at least be part of a very long-term project that was the university that has um, all these compromised forms within it. Um, it's a shortcut to becoming a functioning member of the university for people like myself um, who were completely cut off from social capital and uh, historic and cultural capital. So what this kind of Philistinism does is it's an enabler of the fantasy of higher education as an as a social elevator when it should not when it doesn't function that way at all it's an it's a selection process for very specialized people like Obama like um you know like brilliant members of the working class who move into the PMC and so education itself is not seen when you have the need to decolonize it as a social good for um, to educate you universally, it is seen in a completely instrumentalized way. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting, and to take this from from directly from the book, um, across both these two examples of the unionization and the decolonizing the curriculum, is that in neither case is there the kind of professional discipline or aura of disinterestedness kind of focus on kind of quite narrow professional interests that you might expect from a from a professional or managerial uh, group of people but instead it is about that hoarding of virtue and that and that quite um expansive idea of what that virtue applies to um and and why that group needs to in some ways stand for for kind of some societal virtue which is wider than than just their narrow professional interests which of course is dire then directly counterposed as we were talking previously to that lack of solidarity so it's a weird kind of mix there of having the need to educate the whole of society or on causes mm -hmm. beyond just narrow professional ones um whilst also kind of despising um the people who need to be uh, need to be educated or need to be kind of shown yeah, that's what virtue really So is. that's why I was going to disagree with Alex about how um, the PMC um, unions operate. It's not that they're ambivalent about their privilege. It's that they actually don't like bread and butter issues. They want to find more and more rarefied virtue hoarding issues to work on. And that's the cultural clash within the unions. And to actually say, like, we want to just have raises for everyone. We want everyone to have a living wage. We want everyone, not just like brilliant hackers and coders, to make a lot of money and feel like they can raise children. That's like too boring for them. It's not ambivalence. It's actually contempt. Mm. No, I, I don't for, think they're um, back to basics kind of things that unions used to demand. Yeah, no, I don't think they're ambivalent. I think that their narcissism means that they're so bound up in a consciousness of their own privilege that leads them to have this ambivalent politics, which uh, on one hand can lead towards more leftish sort of causes, um, but at the same time will also kind of adopt the ideology of, of the ruling class as well. So, I mean, I guess that's more, more the question of, of how I saw their, their ambivalence. Um, but it, I think the, the cause really is you just want the PMC to be boring again, to be like 
just focus on their own <laughs> little thing, you know, a librarian be interested in books and the teacher being interested in teaching and not really caring about the whole world and taking responsibility for all of society, but just being boring. And I think this at least has some uh, like correlation with the fact that they're unable to speak for their own interests in their own name. So it's never like we're just defending the RPMC stuff. Mm. I want to advance my career or these are my material interests. It's always for the greater good, for ethics, for a, a kind of depersonalized sense of what the greater good supposed is, but of course, it's completely ideological in the sense that it's um, completely aligned with what their material. I would is say it's for. completely immaterial, right? It's completely in, in, yeah. in, in, immaterial because they. The one thing they really hate is materialism. Yeah, yeah. Either right. historical materialism or materialism or, or understood like, as yeah, vulgar form as yeah. consumerism. Yeah, yeah. Both yeah. crude in in different ways. Um, reductive. So vulgar. Speaking, of, yeah, yeah. speaking of vulgar materialism, actually, uh, we should talk about the culture industry because um, this is something we had jotted down that we wanted to pick your brain about, Catherine, um, and just in general discuss, which is um, the culture industry, good or bad, or to put it in a less flippant way, um, is the culture industry still the same as it was meant in the mid-century, in your opinion, especially as a as a professor of film and TV? So I have this I have this idea now, and I'm going to try it out on you guys, which is that the there is no difference between the culture industry and the PMC any longer. It's just one continuum. So um, it's like one long, it's one big feedback loop. Like we could use, we used to be able to say like the television critic or the film critic was different from the filmmaker. Like Robert Warshaw, who's a left-wing film critic, and he wrote in the 30s and 40s, and he was very distant from Samuel B. Gold, Samuel Meyer, Louis B. Meyer, the moguls, and so he's this poor guy writing for Partisan Review, and he's you know reflecting on the gangster film, and then you have like Edward G. Robinson and Louis Meyer making the films, and there's this huge distance and differentiation. Right now, I feel like we're just on one loop. We're just in the same ecosystem. It's like one. Mm. And one, we're responding to things that are just being produced by our former students and our former students are speaking to us. And one thing I wanted to say was like, this new streaming obsession is really providing like the white PMC with like a reflection, a negative reflection of itself and is perfectly fused. And I'll use myself as an example because, you know, I'm a member of this class and a very corrupt member of this class. So in my um, media consumption habits, I am obsessed with um, gangster, um, like um, drug dealing television series from Gomorra to Narcos to all of these things. And I was thinking about like the violence that I watch every night and then the kind of Zoom um, numbness that I experience during the day. And I, I, I was thinking like the, the violent crime series is a perfect um, negative of the bloodless, dishonorable work mm. that I do during the day because at least these violent criminals have honor and they die and they're like real stakes when they make a mistake. For me, there's not no honor, no stakes, just conformity and alienation. <laughs> How about that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa. I, mean, <laughs> I think that that's what that's what a PMC PMCer might call spicy. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if this is relevant or, or connected, but I mean, one thing which I've been thinking about is that no one complains about the intellectuals anymore. So no, you know, you'd have maybe even kind of radical critiques. Oh, these are what the intellectuals are saying, but blah blah blah. Or you know, certainly populist critiques. No one even mentions says the word intellectuals anymore. It's always the media, right? It's the media or media pundits who have completely subsumed what intellectuals were. Um, so I mean, we certainly aren't intellectuals hosting a podcast. We are media 
figments or whatever nodes, self-facilitating media nodes uh, in the terms of Nathan. That's, that's how I always describe yeah. myself, definitely. Exactly, no, speak yeah. Speak for yourself, Alex. Uh, but that, that, I guess, maybe itself is is some in some way, a, a, I don't know, a, a, a consequence of the confluence of the PMC and the culture industry, that it's also just swallowed up what intellectual, the whole category of an intellectual. Yeah, which yeah, is... I guess content producers we're content yeah. producers and content consumers yeah. content producers yeah. as well no we're we're dis discontent producers but no i mean that's the, the 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 spectrum of media production um i guess we all you know we all tweet we are all all producers of of content um everybody can can do that now i had uh though a, a question about the future i believe that children of the future mm, so i have a question they so on much are. they so much are on on children because um, this is one <laughs> this is one chapter of of the book <laughs> we, that we didn't really get to on the other episode um and i think it's a really really good one because you kind of look at how for pmc parents having a children is a choice infants have this potential that needs to be optimized and maximized and you can see a projection of a lot of the ways of um feeding and acting that the pmc have projected onto onto children and you say the pmc people are both terrified of and thrilled by procreation because children cannot help but amplify social anxieties about competition which i think hits the nail on the head so yeah what i mean i guess the question is what well two two parts of the question one you know what can we tell about the pmc from from their children this um idea of the managed child maybe is this the archetype of the pmc child well, and secondly what what does this mean when these uh the children of the pmc grow up what what are they gonna gonna be like um that i don't know but i have a 20 year old and uh I, I, he's he's okay um i was going to disown him when he was going to go work in for mckinsey or something like that but he says he doesn't <laughs> want to go work for that now so. <laughs> but um but one of the things that um you had in the sort of meritocratic, high liberal utopian tradition was the alleged breakdown of feudalism and inherited privilege and rights so that everyone would have to re-earn their merit to be part of this class. But it's now the whole point. thing is about gaming the system to um, to guarantee that your children can pass through those narrow gates. And PMC parents are very, very terrified that their um, progeny may not make it in the meritocracy. So I feel like this is given a way to um, the purchasing of, of um, office by optimization for um, elite ent entry into elite universities or colleges, and this kind of ever- um, present anxiety that Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about, which is fear of falling, that the chil mm. that your child will fall out of the class. And what we have is a real possibility of that because there is no social safety net. So one of the things that PMC parents are terrified about is actually having to care for their dependent children. But what is happening is that upper middle class parents are providing the social safety net that didn't exist before so that you can move so that you know during covid if your parents have a capacious basement where you can go and smoke pot and game for until you're 30 and the pandemic is over that is your social safety net and um that is the kind of um um care for adult dependents that we've created in a world where there is no society as margaret culture margaret thatcher told us so you also have this um great accommodation of um 
the PMC child who is is a low achiever, if you like. So I think that that the PMC parent has become the social safety net. There is this anxiety, but then in the end, you have to take care and coddle your you know child who's probably going to be unemployed. But what I was going to say um, was that the thing that everyone has found striking is that the um, birth rate in America has plummeted since COVID. You'd think that no one had anything to do at home and you'd just be, um, you know, rutting. But they're not. They're, people are not having children. There's no, this is what George said, there is no future. People are terrified of there not being a future. And it's across the classes, actually. And um, one of the things that has happened, actually, because we mm. have such terrible childcare, such terrible provision for mothers, is that um, we have a retreat from the workforce of mothers who are uh, taking care of their children and homeschooling them. And so mm. we're going to have another, like, um, wave of extremely angry, dispossessed women in a few years mm. because these mothers are being slammed by the lack of social structure, social solidarity that has created the home as the place where um, a mother has to multitask work and, and teach her child. So um, I'm not surprised that there's a collapse of um, birth rates. Mm, so maybe... George was wrong. Children aren't the future. Hmm. No, the future is so bleak that no one even wants to bring children into it. Um, But I, but that's not, but that, if we're not careful. But so that's like the bleak aspect of it. But what I, what animated that chapter was that I had my son and all, I was surrounded by these upper middle class PMC moms and they were regularly able to humiliate me and other people by their rarefied childbearing um, techniques. I'm like, what the heck is this? You know, one of my friends would say, "Um, oh, we don't tickle, that's child abuse. And uh, if you're going to pick wow. up, yeah, and um, you know, a, a, a child who was just a very a baby, if you picked him up, you had to tell him you were picking him up. Like, I'm picking uh, you up now. I mean, but maybe this was part surely, of infant education. This was a part of a system called infant education. You should have asked for consent rather than said, I'm picking you up. That is what it was. It was the asking of consent. It's this idea that you can have this perfectly coordinated contractual um, idea of um, care that you would impose on other adults to control them so that they could be on the perfect feedback loop with their child. Children are incredible, right? Babies are infuriating, they'll exhaust you, depressing, beautiful. They're like the most sensuous things in the world. But this is all about PMC rationalization to optimize the child care moment by humiliating other adults. Mm, They should really uh, tickle the child and later teach the child (laughs) that that's trauma and how to instrumentalize their trauma for personal gain. That would set off the kid (laughs) in the right direction in life. No, but then you could say like, well, you were tickled that one time when my, when your horrible working class uncle came over and that's your trauma. That's, that's why you are the way you are. That's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's the foundational trauma that we all need. Uh, It's good to have an explanation for any, yeah, yeah, for any shortcomings like that. Okay, before we um, go any further down this line, maybe we should leave that here. Um, Thanks very much, as always, Catherine, for for coming on. Okay. Uh, The book is great. Thanks very much, Catherine. Uh, listeners should check it out the book is called virtue hoarders it's great it's a it's a short read as well uh, which is always helpful uh so i would encourage you all to go out and get it uh, cheers catherine uh, and that's it from us for now catch you later bye-bye